0: We are live at New York Comic Con! Thank you all so much for being here with us today. Thank you. My name is Charles Liu. You can call me Chuck. Uh, I would prefer it, in fact, because that's what my friends call me. And this panel on the science of science fiction is going to be a great time. We have with us two of the most amazing scientists and science communicators that you can find in any Comic-Con. Let me introduce them to you right now. I'm going to start here on my left, which maybe you your right because, you know, we're all on cameras and stuff. Geneticist, Dr. Dan Ginsberg! <laughs> okay, Dan, now, I know that you studied genetics at Stanford before coming to the East Coast, Ply your trade, and I also know that part of your research there at Stanford was screening mutant attachment site libraries. Clearly, then, you are an expert on mutations, are you not? Uh, I'm guessing your work isn't actually on how to create super soldiers? Um,
1: <laughs> so actually, when, um, uh, when I decided to go into genetics, um, One of the things I did was, one of the things I wanted to do was actually create chloroplast people. Um, So the green things in plants that um, allow photosynthesis to happen have their own little genome. And my goal was to incorporate that genome into the human skin genome and make green people. And all you would have to do is go stand out in the sun to get all the energy you need. You would never have to eat again. (laughs) (laughs) So that project fell by the wayside. It's unethical and next to impossible. (laughs) Um, But um, I have been, um, I do work with mutants all the time. Uh, My current research is in the yeast, uh, the brewer's yeast, baking yeast, that you probably all used to make sourdough bread during the pandemic. Um, And uh, um, I mostly focus on um, the molecular mechanisms of how genes get turned on. Um, And so, um, you know, what proteins are involved, how the chromosomes get rearranged in order for genes to get turned on. Um, I've got a bunch of other projects, but the other one, mostly involving mutants, is I'm trying to create mutant yeast strains that will ferment beer faster.
0: I want some of that beer, Uh, (laughs) not yet. By the way, there is actually a character in the DC comics that does uh, get energy via photosynthesis. Uh, It's Black Orchid in the DC uh, world, but she's purple. Yeah, not not blue, not green. Don't ask me why. (laughs) Cyanobacteria, okay. And on my right, everybody, is an amazing neuroscientist, psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, psycho-awesomeness, Dr. Heather Berlin! <laughs> uh, you may have seen much of Heather's work in movies and so forth. Uh, she'll tell you more about that later, but as well on TV, PBS, Discovery Channel, and things like that. Heather, I am guessing that with graduate degrees from both Harvard and Oxford, that you might have a bit of divided loyalties when it comes to superheroes and countries and so forth. So I want to get this out of the way right now. Which country has the better superheroes, the United States or the United Kingdom?
2: Um, well, I mean, I am a sucker for an accent. However, I think the United States have the better superheroes. Is that okay to say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, I spent a lot of time in the UK, but my research actually is looking at um, the neural basis of consciousness, so how our physical brain creates our conscious perception. Uh, Everything we experience from the moment we wake up, so we go back to a deep, dreamless sleep. Uh, But also, all of the unconscious processes in our brain, how they're influencing our behavior outside of our awareness. And we think we're the master of our own decisions, but really it's your unconscious brain that's making those decisions, and you're only aware of it after the fact. Spoiler alert. Bummer. Um, oh but, man! <laughs> but I've been involved a little bit in, in sort of this universe in that um, I'm, I work with the National Academy of Sciences at something called the Science and Entertainment Exchange.
0: Look it up, everybody! It is a cool organization. It's NAS great. Science Entertainment Exchange. Heather, it's tell awesome. Us on
2: that. Yeah. So basically, we work with with Hollywood screenwriters and um, they, whoever is. Needing a scientist, they can dial one eight hundred need sci, and we're on call. So I've advised for Marvel films, Doctor Strange. Some of my stuff got in there, little things that, yeah, Easter eggs. So I don't know if you know the scene when he's driving and he gets distracted on a call because they say, you know. He, basically they say he has to come in to do surgery doing deep brain stimulation on a patient. So I told them about this deep brain stimulation that we use to treat psychiatric patients. In this case, they said to treat schizophrenia. We, we're not quite there yet, but we're using it to treat Uh, depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. And then he gets so distracted by the call that uh, that he gets into a car accident, and that's when, you know, all this stuff goes down. (laughs) So that's a (laughs) little... Thank you, Heather. No, I
0: super appreciate that very much, and it's very cool. We will ask you more about that Dr. Strange stuff because we're now going to go into three segments of science regarding science fiction. Okay, each one we're going to have our experts talk about them. Segment number one is about supergenetics. Woo! Supergenetics. Featuring people like She Hulk, Miss Marvel, Eternals, X Men, Daredevil, Spider Man, WandaVision, whatever. Okay, Dan, how does mutation in humans actually work?
1: So, um, first of all, we are all mutants. Um, <laughs> Um, no two of us are, uh, are identical uh, genetically, um, unless you have an identical twin out there. Um, uh, but our DNA is being altered and changed all the time. Um, it gets kind of scary. Even the water in your cells can cause mutations in your DNA. Um, every time your cells divide, so we're all adults, our cells are not dividing very much anymore. Every time you get a cut, every time you get an injury and your cells have to divide, um, your DNA has to be copied. That copying machinery does a pretty good job. Um, In 3 billion base pairs, it makes one mistake. So every time your DNA gets copied, one new mutation gets introduced into the genome of that cell. And so these mutations accumulate over time. Um, Besides normal copying errors, um, there are what are called jumping genes. There are mobile elements within the genome that can either copy themselves and move to a new location, or cut themselves out and move to a new location, introducing (laughs) a mutation where they land.
0: Okay, Uh, so Can you become mutated by your cousin's blood getting into you in some sort of, oh, I don't know, car accident?
1: So, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, It turns out there's something called horizontal gene transfer. So normally we get our DNA from our parents, it's passed down vertically. Um, But it turns out a lot of evolution is driven by horizontal gene transfer, even between species. So, um, one famous example, there's this slug that eats plants. And um, the slug maintains the plant's chloroplasts um, and gets energy from those chloroplasts. And to maintain those chloroplasts, the slug has incorporated some of the algal, uh, algal genes into its own genome. Whoa. And this is not just in slugs. There was evidence that somewhere on the order between hundreds and uh, maybe on the order of 1500 human genes have been horizontally transferred in from other species. So we have lamprey genes, we have- uh, Lamprey eels,
0: species. you mean those things that like suck onto fish and like- <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Anyway, that's cool. But no She-Hulks? No no She-Hulks likely? No. Okay, all right. So, Heather, can a physical mutation actually cause like neurological issues? Like, um, for example, your inability to control your impulses or your emotion or anger management, and you get really mad and start breaking things, for example, when you turn green because you got somebody else's blood in your body. Is that a mutation that actually happens?
2: Well, um, yeah, there's actually a gene that codes for uh, certain neurons in your prefrontal cortex. And your prefrontal cortex is kind of like the brake system of the brain. So if you have a sort of broken or impaired brake system, it becomes much harder to control your emotions. And there's certain disorders, something called intermittent explosive disorder, where people just cannot control their anger outbursts. So they have a small trigger and they just explode. And there are genetic underpinnings to these kinds of disorders. Wow.
0: Is there an intermittent singing disorder where people just burst into song and they can't control themselves?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can- On a dark desert highway. Oh, sorry. Make an appointment (laughs) come and see me.
0: I certainly will, Dr. Berlin. Now, Daredevil, Dan, uh, Hulk, Spider-Man, uh, Monica Rambeau as Photon in WandaVision, they all got mutated because of radioactivity, right? Gamma radiation, weird Scarlet Witch radiation, whatever. Um, how does mutation cause muta- uh, get caused by individuals when they're exposed to radioactivity?
1: Um, so there's a reason that they give you a lead apron when you get dental x-rays. Um, <laughs> Um, because uh, that kind of radioactivity actually damages your DNA, it breaks your DNA. And when those DNA breaks get repaired, your body does it, again, mostly accurately, but about 50% of the time, it introduces a mutation when it repairs those breaks. So radioactivity is one of the most dangerous things that you can expose yourself to, besides smoking.
0: Smoking? Oh, so we should create like the Incredible Smoking Hulk or something like that. Okay, just, just curious. Not possible, but but what about like super-powered mutants? Really, that's what we're here for, right? X-Men, Wolverine, who's kind of an X-Men, Namor, who by the way will be introduced as a mutant. Uh, I'm not ruining anything for everybody, but Wakanda forever! Okay, uh, seriously, Dan, how is it possible, or you know, how potentially is it possible for humans to gain superpowers through mutation?
1: So it gets, it, this is tricky. So. Um, there are some current human mutations that you might consider superpowers. So some of the more recent human mutations, um, just if you're willing to share uh, for a show of hands, how many people here are lactose intolerant? <laughs> okay, so there's, there's a good number. Um, you are actually the ancestral gene. Oh. So lactose tolerance arose about 10,000 years ago and spread throughout the population around the same time we domesticated cattle, surprisingly enough. Um, And the the, the mutations arose in Europe, Northern Europe and the Middle East. So people from from not from those places tend to be lactose intolerant at higher rates.
0: Wow. So if you can digest milk, you actually are a mutant superhero. (laughs) Milk drinker, man. instead of having spines coming out of your hands, uh, spikes, you wind up with what? Cow (laughs) things? Uh... You don't starve. (laughs) Okay, now, there is one amazing sort of mutation that happens in the Eternals, uh, the, where basically they get to live forever, right? Now the Eternals are mutated apparently by some alien influence or whatnot, so it's, it's not exactly human mutation, but, but the Eternals are mutated so they essentially live forever. Can longevity in humans or anything else actually be genetically programmed, can be
1: created through mutations and things like that? So this gets really tricky. So there are some very long-lived organisms, much longer than humans. Um, There's a species of jellyfish that actually, as far as we can tell, aside from being eaten, is immortal. Um, It can basically go back to its juvenile state and then go back to being mature and um, go between those cycles forever. Um, But in terms of human immortality, um, the problem is we get sick. The problem is our bodies break down. And so there'd have to be a whole lot of stuff that, we'd have to fix or we'd have to change for that to happen. It turns out that when people look at this in terms of uh, different things that can extend lifespan, the best thing you can do to live longer, unfortunately, is what's called caloric restriction. If you go on a really, really restrictive diet, you can live longer, but you don't get to eat very much, which to me is not a good (laughs) trade-off.
0: Can can we just eat like a lot of celery and therefore live forever? Or you just can't really eat even celery?
1: Uh, I believe it's about 1,500 calories a day max. Oh. <laughs>
0: Ouch. That's like only six Snickers bars. Yeah. Okay, that, that's not so cool. All right, yeah, if those of you who are in the door, please come on in, we're, we're just uh, having a great time here talking about the science of science fiction. Uh, Dr. Heather Berlin, Heather, oh, yeah, yeah, someone was about to applaud. We're about to talk about the science of science fiction. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> Thank you so much. Heather. Yes. Yes. Immortality is, uh, we're, we're starting to think, uh, heading toward our second uh, segment here. But before we get there, this is a transition point that I want to ask someone who really knows about the brain and about psychology and so forth. Mm-hmm. We are just talking, Dan, about how jellyfish could essentially live forever as long as they don't get eaten. Mm-hmm. We have a harder time doing that. But we have a lot of superheroes who basically live forever. Mm-hmm. why do they still care what we think about them i mean mm. why is there still psychology or psychiatry of these folks right mm. i mean i, I think about uh, somebody who has been around for 10 million years mm-hmm. and they've seen everything mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. why would they still have neuroses or psychoses or be sad about being uh, you know rejected by a crowd or you know i mean what what is the psychology of immortality? Mm.
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of conversation, philosophical conversation around immortality. The, the, the. It's well, first of all, in humans, all we have to do is cure every illness, and then <laughs> if we get rid of sickness, we could live potentially forever. Um, but you know, there if these anim- these 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 immortal immortal beings have a nervous system the nervous system is so complex and imperfect and there's no perfect brain right every brain is slightly different it's like a thumbprint and we're all wired slightly differently so there's a lot of similarities between us but but everyone perceives the world in a slightly different way and so there's no reason that just because you can live forever that you get around this issue of having potentially a nervous system, how do they perceive the world? And that's imperfect. We don't perceive the world in a one-to-one correlation. It's a perception that we create with this brain that's imperfect. And because of those imperfections, which are needed, because if we saw everything exactly the way it was, it would be overwhelming, it would be too much information. We have to use heuristics and shortcuts. And so in that imperfection, which is adaptive, lies the other psychological issues that can emerge.
0: So even if you are immortal and you have an infinite amount of time to process everything. Mm-hmm. You still can't process everything. Your brain yes. still is incomplete and therefore you because are subject to personality deficiencies could, or defects.
2: And the brain is constantly changing. It's never the same. It's always, it's adapting to its environment. So you 100,000 years from now, you might be almost like a different kind of person or thing than what you are right now because it's not static. So who you were when you were five is very different than who you are now but you maintain the memory so the whole idea of identity is just continuity It's just the memory that we form that's a creation in our mind that's not real
1: so speaking of memory would someone who lives you know a million years how far back would their memory go
2: that's a good question it depends on how big their hippocampus is oh. <laughs> That's another story. So, so,
0: a hippocampus the size of a hippopotamus—they can remember a lot.
2: Well, theoretically, so so consciousness is is limited in terms of the amount of information you can hold in your conscious mind, but the unconscious is limitless. So you might—it might be all in there. But the idea is, how do you have a search mechanism? That's what we do to find the memory and pick it out again. It's not going to just be living there all the time, but you might have a search mechanism. Say, okay. 150 you know, years ago, what was happening then? And you might have a queue to be able to pull it out of that storage unit. Okay,
0: So it's kind of like if I'm trying to find this, uh, I don't know, picture that I put in my downloads folder like six months ago, mm-hmm. and I'm going through 5,000 files and I may or may not be able to find it. It's that sort of thing.
2: You need like something to queue it, to search it. So yeah, it could take a while. I again, see, depending okay. Depending on how much is in there. All right,
0: <laughs> so Dan, as a mutations expert, what mutation would you most like to have?
1: Oh. So, I've actually thought about this. I'm incredibly impatient. <laughs> I would love to be able to teleport like Nightcrawler. Oh.
0: Nightcrawler. Now, that's great. Would you like to smell like Nightcrawler after like the bamf? Would you like to make the noise bamf? Sure. Yes, okay. All right, bamf. Heather, same question. What mutation would you like to have?
2: I'm kind of into the living forever one. Um, okay. <laughs> that would be really fun. But, but it, I, I also think it could be cool to mind read. Um, Ooh. I think that would give me a huge advantage in right. certain aspects of my life, especially interpersonal relationships. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, I can relate. Sounds perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. So this leads us into segment two of our Science of Science Fiction, Super Neuropsychology. Hey, all right, <laughs> Heather. We're going to start right away with the recent Marvel series Moon Knight. Mm. Okay, psychology of Moon Knight was fascinatingly done. Uh, it was really very interesting, and I know that some people uh, in your profession helped with this, but I don't know if you particularly or or if the uh, Science Exchange actually did this. The main character, uh, who is both Stephen Grant and Mark Spector, and then we find out also someone named Jake Locksley has dissociative identity disorder, something that we used to call like split personality, right? And sensationalized in movies like The Three Faces of Eve or Sybil and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, what is actually, how does uh, DID, split personality, actually work? Mm -hmm. Um, And and the question is, can one such personality be superpowered Mm -hmm. and the other not be superpowered? I mean, can Mm -hmm. you actually do that? I mean, that happens like in Moon Knight, but also if those of you who are fans of M. Night Shyamalan, he wrote this movie called Split, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that possible?
2: Yeah, so it, it, it's really interesting. So it used to be called multiple personality disorder because they thought that was one person or these many personalities. But then it got sort of rebranded as dissociative identity disorder because the idea is that we actually have one identity that has then been fractionated off into these multiple identities. And with treatment, the idea is to reintegrate them into one identity again. This definitely exists. There used to be a lot of controversy, like these people were making it up. But we started doing neuroscience experiments and found that there is really a neural basis to this. And what it is is from a psychoanalytic perspective, it's a defense mechanism. Usually they've had some sort of childhood trauma and instead of suppressing, which is a kind of defense mechanism or repressing, they split, they dissociate, And so they only have access to the traumatic memories when they're in one brain state and not the other. And what's interesting is you can put them in a scanner, see when they're in one state or the other, and in one state they'll they'll say, yes, I have access to these memories, and they'll have physiologic responses to like, if you read them a memory script. And in the other state they'll say, I don't have any memory of that, and they won't have any physiologic responses, no increased heart rate or, uh, so, all that they really, there's, they're in a state where they just really don't remember it and they're not even reacting to it at all. So, the brain can split things like this.
0: Wow. Including physiological responses.
2: Yes. Including even allergic reactions. In some cases, what? they have an allergic reaction in one state and not in the other. I mean, Whoa. it's amazing. And this one case, not to like belabor the point, but she was blind in one scenario and not in the other. And we said, that's impossible. You can't be blind in one state, not yeah. the other. And then they did EEG to look at her visual cortex and showed like a flashing checkerboard. And when she said she could see, you would see an EEG response in the brain. When she said she couldn't, there there was a, like a flat line. And that means that she's, her brain is suppressing that information very early on in the wow. sort of processing um, chain in the brain. It's really fascinating.
0: Wow. You're saying that basically a consciousness of a brain can actually suppress things like your senses, vision, hearing, whatever. That's amazing.
2: And you can have multiple kind of states of consciousness within one brain. Okay.
0: So when Jake Loxley's, for example, speaks Spanish Mm -hmm. and Mark Spector can't, or when Stephen Grant is speaking Arabic and Mark Spector kind of, you know, whatever. That's totally
2: possible, totally normal. It is, actually. It could happen,
0: yeah. Wow, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah. That It really feels like it that's almost a mutation, but you're saying that it's not. It's an environmental thing as opposed to, like, a, a, an actual genetic component.
2: I mean, you'd have to be able to learn the language first at some point, but it might be that only when you're in that one brain state is when you spoke or learned that language and not in the other brain state, and then they're completely split off from one another. So it is possible. Wow.
0: Did Nightcrawler just teleport in? (laughs) Hi, we were just talking about the BAMF. Yeah, Uh, nice job, thank you, (laughs) welcome. Um, That's amazing. So, So Dan, actually, is there like a genetic component to general personality disorders? I mean, are people more likely to get these kinds of disorders if they have, say, they don't have trauma, but they might somehow still
1: get it because they have a genetic predisposition to it? Uh, Absolutely. So one of the things I try to convince my students and my my nursing students in my human genetics class is that your genetics influences everything there is about you. Um, From, you know, hair color, eye color, um, handedness, footedness, how optimistic you are, um, all that stuff. Whether you like cilantro or not. Um, And so I did have to go look this up, but um, uh, there are several papers Um, and Heather might know more about these than I do, Um, but there there have been studies that have shown several different diseases that um, give you a predisposition to disorders like um, dissociative identity disorder. And a lot of those genes are involved in brain signaling, particularly calcium signaling and brain development. So I think you still need the traumatic event to actually get dissociative identity disorder, but you are more likely to get it if you suffer trauma.
2: So what in 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 the field of psychiatry we call the stress diathesis model and so the diathesis is basically meaning the underlying vulnerability toward getting a disorder so like maybe a genetic predisposition but it doesn't mean that you'll ever that the phenotype ever will emerge um, but then a stressor can interact with that vulnerability and that's when the psychiatric illness emerges and that's why o- often a lot of like psychotic disorders emerge in like late adolescence, early adulthood when you're transitioning out of let's say high school and into college in a very stressful period of time is when these psychiatric illnesses tend to emerge. And it's very rare for someone to like never have any psychiatric symptoms and suddenly like in their 40s or something have an illness because usually there would have been enough stressor at some point in life where it would have emerged earlier. I see.
0: It's too bad we can't live lives of stress-freeness until you're 40, right? That's (laughs) what we would like to do in life, but that's not the case. One of the better scenes in the Moon Knight series was when Stephen Grant was talking to Mark Spector within his own head during a scene, and they're like arguing with one another. You know, let me take over. No, you know that sort of thing. Does that happen? Is that a real thing, or is that really just a plot device?
2: So often, with the within dissociative identity disorder, they they often don't really have access at the at the same time because they're two different brain states. So it's like you can't. It's almost like that. Necker cube, Do you ever see that cube where you, the, it's like you can see it in one perspective and then the other, right? Like it's like a box and you never see them both at the same time, it kind of switches back and forth in your mind's eye and they're two different kind of brain states or states of perception. So they can't be there at the same time. But there's another disorder, um, it, it's called split brain. And that's where the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres is the is split, either people are born without it, a, a colossal patients, or they split it on purpose with neurosurgery because there's an epileptic seizure starting in one hemisphere and they don't want it to spread. And there were a lot of these split brain patients, they did experiments on them, and that was really interesting because then there would be these two different people. So like, it was almost like Dr. Strange Love or whatever, Dr. Strange Love. Like one, one hand would be buttoning up the shirt and then the other hand would like button it down. Yeah, If anybody saw Dr. Strange Love? Exactly, he was like fighting with himself. and so there are these two kind of voices in your head. But you know, there. when we get these uh, disorders of connection, of connectivity in the brain, you can get these multiple voices in your head telling you different things, and you can argue. I mean, I, I've done it, you know. <laughs> like, one part, like, eat the cookie, don't eat the cookie, eat the cookie, anyway, yeah.
0: Yes, I always eat the cookie eventually. <laughs> it's so true, <laughs> sorry about that. Okay, so, next topic about this uh, has to do with disease, not of, personality, but actually from biological sources, or mystical sources, perhaps. I'm talking about Sandman. Uh, Some of you are watching the Netflix series, others of you, like me, uh, started on the comic from 1989 or 88 or something like that, and it's going on ever since, New Game, and beautiful work on Sandman. According to that particular story, the way that Neil said it, uh, that uh, while Morpheus, the manifestation of dreams, was trying to travel from one place to another. He was kidnapped and prevented from going. And as a result, millions of people around the world started getting this weird sickness in their head where they couldn't dream anymore, they they were like in this stupor, they were sleeping all the time. It was called encephalitis lethargica. As it turns out, that's part of a real thing. After World War I, there was this weird sleeping sickness that came out called encephalitis lethargica. And some people have likened it even to certain aspects of long COVID where people have been brain fogged or can't seem to stay awake, very tired. They're not really sure what's going on. And so this is something we want to ask you, Heather. Mm. As far as the Sandman idea of lethargica, right? Mm -hmm. Do do we actually know today what caused it medically? Uh, Can that happen today in in these kinds of long COVID cases, for example, or any other germ-caused method where people just sleep and can't wake up, or, or can barely wake up, or walking around in like a zombie-like state. Ooh, mm-hmm. zombies. We'll talk about those in a minute.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, right, so this did exist. I mean, it's reported and that there was, you know, up to a million people, probably more, who had this encephalitis lethargica. And there's, there's a couple of theories out there, but one is that it, the Spanish flu, or so a viral infection that was spreading um, throughout Europe and around the world, um, basically the virus causes your immune system to have a response and that then there becomes this autoimmune response where your your immune system is attacking your own body and attacks your brain and causes this inflammation that can then result in this excessive sleepiness and lethargy and fatigue and a similar thing may be happening with long COVID um, that it's actually an overreaction of your immune response starts attacking your own brain causing this long-term inflammation but it's triggered by the virus itself.
0: So if I just can't get up in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's 1 a.m. or 1 p.m., 2 p.m., and, and my wife says, get up, dude. And I said, I'm an astronomer, I'm supposed to sleep late, but I can't use that excuse forever. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't have this problem, right? I, I can't I say, oh, I'm sorry, I have encephalitis lethargica, I can't get up.
2: No, I mean, unless you have long COVID, I don't know. <laughs> no, fortunately
0: but, not. Yeah, <laughs> But that brings up an interesting point mm-hmm. because one of the things about COVID was the mutations. Right, Dan? We had the original, I guess it's called alpha.
2: It still is the mutations, it wasn't was. There are still There's still occurring mutations occurring as we right. speak. And then this very and, moment.
0: Know, the, the first uh, tr- uh, vaccine went very well uh, and stopped alpha basically, but then Delta came in, it didn't stop it so well, so we got a booster. And then Omicron, and Omicron is giving people COVID, even though they are uh, boosted, and so now we just have another booster. This, this mutation stuff is annoying. What the heck?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, so viruses, really short generation time, um, and so every time the, the virus replicates, more mutations are introduced. Um, and particularly for RNA viruses like COVID, um, the copying mechanisms for RNA are really, really inaccurate. And so um, uh, they, get, they develop even more mutations. And most of those mutations produce viruses that don't infect us as well, um, but because there's so many viruses out there, then um, they, more viruses develop. Um, there have been studies that show the longer a pathogen remains in a population and infecting people, the more virulent it becomes, the better it becomes at infecting Um, its host. They showed this with the um, uh, Ebola outbreak in Africa, and you can see it with uh, COVID, too.
0: I would have thought that it'd get worse at it, because the more it's in there, the better our immune systems are able to stop it.
1: They adapt much, much faster than we do. Bummer. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. But this is cool. The reason that we don't clone ourselves, so there's something called parthenogenesis, where a multicellular organism like us that can basically uh, a female self-fertilizes an egg and produces a baby that is a clone of her. Ooh. Um, so that is how multicellular organisms would reproduce asexually. Uh-huh. Um, the reason we reproduce we reproduce sexually evolutionarily is because of pathogen infection that this is that the, the diversity in the population that sexual reproduction gives um, allows us to survive these kinds of infectious agents.
0: That's pretty cool. okay. so, in order for our progeny to survive longer, we ourselves get sick. That's basically what's happening, isn't it? Like we are, we are sacrificing our own wellness in order that we can pass along the ability to be more successful as a species with our progeny. Is that correct?
1: I think a, maybe a better way to say it was that we sacrifice the number of children we have to have higher quality children. Oh.
2: <laughs> And there's this, just to add a little, and correct me if I'm wrong, geneticist, but um, there's something called the compatibility complex, which um, is so interesting. So it has to do with who we're attracted to in terms of a mate to want to mate with. And um, they did all these studies, but basically they found that people who had a compatible immune system, so they did the smell, the, the t-shirt test, so basically they had these men sleep in these t-shirts overnight and then... They gathered up a smell and then they had the women the next day didn't see the men but just smelt the t-shirts and then they decided which one were they most attracted to. And then they compared their genetic makeup and found that the one that they were most attracted to via smell had the best like compatibility in terms of their immune system. So you're attracted to people who have this like like let's say you don't have the gene for whatever to fight against certain virus and they do like you're going to be more attracted to that person so you have better offspring to survive. That's yeah. a perfect explanation, yeah. All right, thank you. <laughs> okay. Whew. Wow. Yeah, it's cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> and wait, one more just important bit of information. They found that when women were on birth control, they didn't pick the right ones. <laughs> so be careful who you pick, because then suddenly they went off the birth control, and they're like, who is this person? And then went, so there you have it.
0: <laughs> who is this person? Okay, we have fewer children so that they can be healthier. I, I should have told... My wife, that before we went for three. No, we love that little one. He's a sweetheart, and he's actually the one that like enjoys Comic Con as much as I do. So, uh, so I yeah, I, I love that stuff. Um, okay, speaking of progeny, uh, you know that Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, in WandaVision and then in Doctor Strange, uh, second movie, um, is obsessed with her children, right? The in fact, this this is a, a point, um, Heather, which I think we should really talk about a little bit because she is so obsessed with having children uh, that she essentially goes insane, right? And, mm. and without doing substantial spoilers, for those of you who have not yet seen Doctor Strange, uh, Multiverse of Madness, um, what would cause, is it fair to call somebody truly like insane uh, if they are grieving, if they are suffering, or it was it something else? Like, can we say, oh, she was insane because of the influence of the dark hole, this terrible book that oh. she was trying to use to bring her children back? I mean, is it fair to, to categorize someone as being mentally ill out of an emotion like grief or longing or something like that?
2: Well, you know, there's no there's no um, line in which like, if you're this way, then you're not mentally ill, but if you cross this line, you are, right? So it's really a matter, when we diagnose people, it's a matter of how distressful it is to you. So there's a a degree of sadness, let's say you have a bad breakup or somebody dies, but then it's like, how long is it lasting, how intense is it, how much distress is it causing to your life? And, you know, at some point, point, we might give it a name and call it a disorder, but there's no thing in the brain that's a disorder, it's just, How much distress is it? So, subjectively, if this caused her to be having significant distress that she couldn't get rid of and that was interfering with her life, then we would say she might have, you know, a psychological issue that needs treatment. There's no such thing as normal. There's just variations.
0: That's the best news I've heard all day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Well, um, does that mean that, Dan, that genetics can also do this? I mean, we talked already about how genetics can cause things like that, but, but genetics, what's your perspective on when somebody, you know, can you actually fix or can you cause a mutation if you're feeling very strong emotions, for example? Like, we know that very often in, in X Men or in other kinds of mutant movies, uh, a teenager's superpower gets immediately triggered, right, when there's some stressful event. Is that the kind of thing that can happen in real life?
1: Well, so it's all about uh, predispositions, right? So you are at higher risk of superpowers, you are at higher risk of mood disorders, um, but then there there is some triggering event, and if you are not at higher risk, maybe that triggering event does not cause the mood disorder, whereas if you are at a genetically higher risk, then the triggering event does cause the cause disorder.
2: And there's also, we found that um... Look, studies have looked at resilience, and so, for example, looking at they looked at soldiers um, fighting in Israel who are, they all experienced the same traumatic events, but some of them went on to develop um, PTSD or post traumatic stress disorder, and the others didn't. And they found that the ones who didn't actually had genes that coded f- basically for resilience. There were certain kinds of genes that made them more resilient against developing PTSD when they were exposed to the same kind of trauma. But in general, you know, when people talk about nature, nurture, you know, it's, it's both, right? It's both, you know, whether it's 50, 50, or some disorders have a bit stronger genetic component than others, but it's never like 100% one or the other.
0: Very interesting. Okay, well, before we move on to our third and final, the last final segment uh, about our science of science fiction, there is a question from the audience that uh, I got from email uh, from Talal. And Talal's question had to do with, I'll paraphrase it, uh, time perception in brains and so forth. Um, According to Talal, when trying to swat a fly and being very frustrated, it occurred to Talal that, hey, you know what? maybe like the perception of time of small things is different from the perception of time of big things. So like when Ant-Man shrinks down or the wasp you know, becomes tiny, are they somehow seeing time faster? Can they actually zip through or watch our perception of time and laugh and go <laughs> those big people are moving so slowly?
2: So- I actually did some research on time perception and and how it's instantiated in the brain. Um, And none of us have an actually accurate perception of time. Most people have a slower subjective sense of time, but I found that people who are more impulsive actually have a faster subjective sense of time. But it's not about the size of the brain or the body. It's really about how it's wired up, how it perceives time. And yes, different animals, different nervous systems will perceive time in different ways, but, but I don't think it's correlated to the size of the body, although it might make sense somehow to think that it is. Um, but I mean, a fly, their whole life is just one day. I mean, I don't know how, what that experience is like, but yeah.
0: So we should not waste our time swatting flies because they'll be dead in a day anyway?
2: Just let them live. That's all they got, you know. Ah. Just give them the day. (laughs) They used to say, live and let live. You know they did, they They know know you did, you know know you did. Did. did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And with that, thank you so much. Uh, We will go on to our segment three of the Science of Science Fiction. It is about the multiverse. Yes. Something that is happening now, we, we kind of all understand why the multiverse is taking prominence now, because we have to merge the Fantastic Four and the X-Men with the Disney Marvel Avengers and stuff like that, right? So you got to have some way to move universes around. And This was expanded upon a great deal in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Uh, again, because we're not doing spoilers here, I want you to go see the movies and enjoy them. Not going to go into the plot or anything like that, but just be aware that uh, there is multiverse in Doctor Strange, multiverse of madness, and people get really mad. Okay, uh, and and so there, there are these things that we want to know about multiverse, which I will talk to you about from the scientific perspective, and then we'll throw it around for additional questions and comments. And, and Dan and Heather, please comment or ask questions if you want at any time. Basically the question that everyone asks me about multiverse is, can it exist? Is there actually uh, infinite numbers of copies of us floating around somewhere and we just can't access them? Right. So it turns out that as far as physics and cosmology are concerned, there are some ways where more copies of us could exist. Okay. The two best known ways have to do with more than one dimension. Like, we live in a four-dimensional space-time, right? Length, width, height, and time are the dimensions. But if there are five-dimensional structures, or 10-dimensional structures, or 11-dimensional structures in what we might call a multiverse, or in this case, like a supersymmetric structure or something like that, what you can do is have them intersect occasionally. So imagine, this is done by uh, uh, Randall, Lisa Randall and Balasundaram a bunch of years ago. It's called, Randall Sundrum theory, imagine a five-dimensional construct connecting with another five-dimensional construct at one point. That would form a four-dimensional thing for a period of time. Time would not have begun before. And after they separate, time will end for that little four-dimensional blob there. But all the things that are happening within that four-dimensional space-time would be like a universe unto us we would feel like, wow, that's a universe. This is our universe, the one in which we live. So what if there were many such connections, right? Numerous blips here and there. Could there be hundreds, millions, or if these five-dimensional structures could, mathematically speaking, connect in an infinite number of spots, then indeed we could have a true multiverse. So it's not totally fictional. The fictional part is whether we can go from one universe to the next. Can we actually get there back and forth, right? So, I wanna ask uh, Heather, and then I wanna ask Dan, would you like to go visit another universe? If the possibility existed, what would you as a scientist and as a person want to see in another universe?
1: <laughs> I don't know, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> I haven't think about that.
2: I can, I can um, well, I mean, I think I think of it kind of differently. I think, you know, the way that we perceive the universe we find ourselves in is via this three pound piece of matter inside of our brain. And we're creating a universe inside there all the time. Like reality, it's just dark in there, right? It's just ones and zeros. And so whether I'm in this universe or another universe or whatever, it's really still this creation in my mind and there's multiple universes in my
0: head. Wait, so does that mean like it's actually possibly true as described in that movie and other movies, like Michelle Yeoh's recent awesome movie, Everything Everywhere All At Once. I love that one, right? Is it actually true that our dreams are different universes unto themselves? Does it mean that like, we can actually access other things just I by mean, thinking about it or dreaming about it in our
2: sleep? I mean, it's a, this it's, in terms of the sci-fi part of this panel, um, I think, why not? I mean, why couldn't, I mean, They are tied to activation in our brain. We can tie dream activity to physical activity in the brain, but how exactly, we don't know. We still don't understand how matter creates subjective experience. And it could be that when we're in these, have these different subjective states that they are portals to other universes. I mean, why not? We don't know.
0: Yeah, I think you told me once that uh, we are all always sleepwalking. Yeah. Well, Can you I said, explain no, this that a little I'll bit? Say.
2: We are all actually, um, we are hallucinating all the time. We are hallucinating all the time. When we agree upon it, we call it reality, right? <laughs> like, but we are all hallucinating. It's all a, a confabulation that our brain is creating a movie inside our head. And sometimes people get it a little wrong, and that's where you get visual illusions, or then they get really wrong, and you get into things like schizophrenia and hallucinations and delusions, like that hallucinations that don't match up to what everybody else is hallucinating. But we are all hallucinating all the time.
0: That's amazing. So earlier when I thought I saw Nightcrawler come in, that was a hallucination.
2: (laughs) Only if nobody else saw it.
0: (laughs) Okay. Did anybody else see it? Okay, all right, thank goodness. Thank you, Nightcrawler, for being real. I appreciate it. (laughs) Dan, your comments?
2: <laughs>
0: um, think of me as Donahue.
1: What do you think, Dan? <laughs> um, I mean, I. I don't know
2: Donahue. Yeah, no. no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, never
1: mind. Um, so, just out of curiosity, um, what is the five dimensional or 11 dimensional construct that is intersecting? This is what I'm confused uh, by. There you go. Uh...
0: The five dimensional construct at the moment is just called a membrane. Okay, a membrane. So there are M type membranes, and then there are N type membranes, and there are P type membranes. They're not O type membranes because you don't want to confuse it with zero type membranes. Okay, so, and so you can be an M brain or an N brain or a P brain, and either way, it would be a five dimensional structure from which our universe could be built.
2: I have a question. Um, you know how there was the Drake equation that calculated the probability of other life, oh, life yeah. forms and telling mm-hmm. life on other planets? Yes. Um, has anybody done this, like calculate the probability of that there are multiple universes?
0: Ah, that has not yet happened. Uh. That's an incredibly good question. Um, the, mm-hmm. the idea of how many qu- uh, universes though, can come from a different kind of multiverse, and that's called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that yet, uh, the idea is this, there is no reason that you cannot have different possibilities occur when something is happening. In other words, if you have a, a subatomic particle which could either decay or not decay, in our shared collective reality, it will do one thing. But there's no reason to say that in some other reality, it didn't decay. So in other words, you're splitting off universes from an originally existing universe. So this is not a matter of creating multiverses that are all sort of with different origins. But in this case, you start with one, and you just build more and more and more of them with each passing second. So in that case, uh, I, for example, could be, uh, you know, over there drinking a glass of water. And then in another parallel universe, I would not be drinking a glass of water and then you would move on and to somewhere else, I'm drinking a half a glass of water. Or I drank one glass now and I drank one glass later and all this variation can happen. Another
2: another question, and this is might be getting too far into the weeds in no. terms of physics, however. Um... One
0: can never get too far in the weeds <laughs> in
2: physics. As a physicist would say. That's right. um, but does this relate at all to that spooky, you know. Action um, at a distance. Action at a distance.
0: Spooky. Which you want to, I mean, basically, yes.
2: right, you, you can explain it, but well, it's, no, it's okay. at very far distances. Is right. it like, the what are, is it an atom? What is it? The right.
0: E- um, the one version of that today yeah. is known as quantum entanglement.
2: Quantum entanglement. Right. So, like, here it could be pointing down, but, like, 100 million miles away, that same part of that particle could be pointing up. Right. It, has a, it
0: has a memory yes. of when you split it, you you can put them all in the same thing, but you can't look at it yet. The thing is you can't see whether or not it's up or down. And you can't see where any of them is either up or down. Mm -hmm. You move it over there and then you look at this one, you see it's up, then you'll know that that one is also up even though it's so far away you can't see it. They match up. They match up Mm -hmm. automatically. There's almost like a subatomic memory to some extent. Uh, And that's actually a real phenomenon. Albert Einstein in his gut said this can't possibly be right. And yet experiments have shown that yes, quantum entanglement does happen. And what does that mean? You know, that's, if that's one way of thinking that there might indeed be alternate universes, which we just have no memory of them, we don't see them coming as time goes forward, and that's why we can have these kinds of multiverses. So the many worlds interpretation, you can actually start making calculations as to how many of them there are. So like a Drake equation of multiverses, only uh,
1: it's a really, really big number. So the, the many worlds hypothesis is basically that's where there's an, basically an identical every decision you make splits off a new universe where you made the other decision That's right So with the um, mem, M, M, M theory yeah. M mm-hmm. theory um, are those universes also like do they have all the same people or are those very would they those be very should, different
0: That's a great question. the answer is they should be different. They should have different laws of physics different gravitational constants, different speed of light. Uh, Different, you know, chemistry even. Maybe they have a different periodic table. In those kinds of constructions, there should be no connection whatsoever with any of those universes. Which is why when America Chavez, a character that you all should get to know, because he's a very, very cool character, is jumping from one universe to the next in the multiverse, they are, if that were the way that multiverses actually exist, they shouldn't be similar at all. Okay, Um, I know there are some weird ones like, you know, I won't spoil anything by saying this, but Dr. Strange asks America, were we paint? (laughs) Okay, that's a really cool scene, it's sort of true. But yeah, uh, that would be like the closest we would be to any other universe if the multiverse were created from M-theory. But in the many worlds interpretation, it would be a much more likely scenario that we are very similar to the next person beyond that, if that makes sense.
2: I'm waiting for the Lu equation to... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, that, that's not my area of expertise. I study crashing galaxies, and when they smash into each other, they form brand new stars, and it's very beautiful, and one thing like that. And by the way, our Milky Way galaxy is going to crash in with the Andromeda galaxy in about five billion years, so we are toast then. But that's a long time from now, so don't change your retirement plans.
2: Is that plans. before or after the sun... Oh, like, it's
0: right around the same time.
2: Oh, so it's it's, it's be, basically
0: it's a, a race between a, flip whether, of a coin whether yeah. it's a race between whether or not we are destroyed by being flung out of our solar system by da- gravitational dynamical interactions with Andromeda, or whether we are destroyed because the sun goes red giant and blasts us with radiation that we right. can't handle. Nice. All right. Yeah, That's it's a race. Cool. <laughs> we,
2: gotta get
0: off the we gotta get off the planet in about five billion years. Yeah, no matter what. Or but, out
2: of the galaxy. Yeah, maybe. right. Yeah, but okay.
0: but keep in mind, right? A billion years ago, the most complicated form of life on the Earth was a slime mold, okay? So four billion years from now, what would it even mean to be human? Mm-hmm. That's a thing that's worth thinking about and creating. And you were saying earlier, if you live 100,000 years, right, mm-hmm. Heather? Mm-hmm. You might not be the same individual. Right. But certainly a billion years from now, we will not be the same species. If we are, we deserve to go extinct. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of my opinion, right?
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're still evolving. People think evolution is over, but theoretically we are, we are still evolving or devolving, however you want to
0: look at it. <laughs> right, okay. One of the things that happens in multiverse uh, is that um, a zombie shows up. Okay, and you guys like, some of you, how many of you actually like zombies, like Walking Dead and stuff like that? Okay, and some of you have watched Marvel Zombie Universe, right? they read some of those more. Yeah, some people really like them. And, and there's one person who like wanted to applaud, but kind of stopped. <laughs> Let's applaud the Marvel zombie universe because we really like it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Uh, Dan, could there actually be genetic zombies? Is that actually real? So not genetic zombies, but uh, infectious zombies. Even in the Marvel universe, it's a quantum virus, right? Yep. Um, and so, yeah, um, uh, not so much with people. Um, but there are lots of cases in uh, other animals, particularly insects, that basically something, a fungus, a predator, basically takes over the brain of its prey, um, makes the prey do things to spread the fungal spores, makes the prey move to a level of the canopy um, uh, where the fungus grows really well and has like the, the ant victim um, grasp onto a leaf and doesn't eat, doesn't move, and just a lot, it becomes a um, zombie to reproduce the spores of this fungus.
0: Whoa. Yay?
1: <laughs>
0: oh my gosh. That's frightening. Yes. But we, we are immune from that. Our, our brains, Heather, somehow can prevent us cells from being killed by fungi and, and turned into zombie fruits for fungus reproduction? Or is that true? Kind of like the Borg in Star Trek, The Next Generation and stuff like that? What's your take on that?
2: Not necessarily. I don't think that we are completely immune. Um, there are certain things that can Cross the blood brain barrier and Uh-oh. yeah, and be not good for us. Um, the one, one of the things that I really like is toxoplasmosis that's like in spread via okay. cats.
0: You're saying toxoplasmosis, and then Dan is like nodding knowledgeably. Like, yeah. I'm like, what? Oh no. No. tell me.
2: It's where it infects, I believe it's, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, because this is, but it infects the brains of the mice or the, yeah, and then it makes them not afraid of cats and then they can be more like prey for them, basically. <laughs> um, but you, humans can also get infected by toxoplasmosis and it can have some effects on humans. For example, it can make them more impulsive. Um, but yeah, but what was the question? Oh, sleepwalking.
0: Yeah, we, just generally, yeah, what do you
2: think? I oh, mean, we-, we are a zombie in the sense that people who sleepwalk, it's like being a zombie because you're acting in the world, but you're not conscious right? Because wow. consciousness is what we think of when we look at zombies, like, oh, they're not conscious, they're walking dead. But we sometimes act like that as well.
0: So we learned earlier that we we're all mutants. Now we know we're all zombies, too. Yes. <laughs> oh, huh? and we're all hallucinating, and we're all hallucinating, we're hallucinating. reality. And this there's is no great. And no normal. This is the best <laughs> panel ever. I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, America Chavez is a character that I really hope gets developed more and more. I really like that character. And what's cool about America Chavez uh, is that there seems only to be one of her in the entire multiverse. Whereas in Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, or even in Spider-Man No Way Home, right? Um, you have, you get to see versions of yourself and you are, are many, many different people. Sometimes you're alive, sometimes you're dead, etc. There's only one America Chavez. And so, Dan, Heather, let me ask you two: Would you rather be unique in the multiverse, or would you rather have multiple copies of yourself? That's a
1: great question, right? Uh, everyone, think about that for a second. Dan, geneticist, what do you think? Uh, I love the multiple copies. I love to. I, I, you know, I always think, what would have happened if I didn't make the decision I did, or made the opposite decision? If there are multiple copies, I could actually think that I am living that other life.
2: Heather. Um, okay. So I. This is the problem with multiple copies. Um, I want to preserve my consciousness and that is unique to me. Only I know that I'm conscious, only I know what it feels like. And once I replicate myself into some other thing, it's no longer me. It's a different consciousness. So I just don't, I want to preserve consciousness. So I don't understand how, if it could be actually like other me's with the same kind of consciousness, but once you replicate it, it becomes something else because it having, it has new interactions with the world and the brain is constantly changing and evolving and it becomes something different than what I am now. So there'll never be another me. So I go with the uniqueness one. Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the difference between a, a psychologist and a geneticist, I think truly shows up in this idea, right? Which one would you prefer? Lots of copies, just as a backup, you know? Uh, I mean, if we had computer scientists, they'd probably say, oh yeah, make as many copies as you possibly can, right? That's sort of great. So, uh, I hate to say this, we only have three minutes left in this panel, so I just want to wrap, up. I know you guys have been a great audience, it's been such a pleasure to be doing this science of science fiction. Uh, let me wrap up by asking you guys a, a thing. We have learned now that we are all mutants, we are all zombies, we're all hallucinating, you know. Uh, does every super-powered being, superhero, supervillain, have to be a little bit non-human? Because if we humans can be all those things, do they have to be non-human to be super? Uh, in other words, I don't know Heather, must brains of super-creatures uh, have to be different? Do their behavior have to be different? Do their psyches have to be different from the norm? And Dan, must they all have some genetic difference in order to be a superhero?
2: <laughs> um so this is what I think. I think we can all be superhuman and we can just tap into things that are beyond expectation. So I I once did this show, it was called Superhuman Showdown, where we went around the world, it was for Discovery Channel, and we met people who can do these extraordinary things that seem beyond like what normal beyond human physiology, and then we did experiments on them to see how they could do it. And I saw these amazing things that you know, one guy held his his breath underwater for 22 minutes, like broke the world record. Another one's like swimming in ice water for, after like a minute you go hypothermic and he just went for like 20 minutes. It, it, and the, anyway, we can all do things beyond what we think is possible. So I think that we all can be superhuman and you don't need anything extra special. I mean, maybe if you're born with certain genetic, like, you know, If you're really like have, like Michael Phelps, he was born with like really big arms and legs, so it gave him that extra edge, you know? But if you take what you have, if you find that you have some sort of ability or a predisposition towards something, or maybe a certain physical aspect of you, and then you nurture it over time, you can reach these outer limits of what we think is possible. So we're all superhuman.
0: In a scientific way. You heard it from Dr. Heather Berlin. And from Dr. Ginsburg, what's I, your take?
1: I absolutely agree. So oh, we yeah. have genetic predispositions, but um, the en- environmental influences can basically overcome almost any genetic predisposition. And with tons and tons of work and willpower, we can all be superheroes.
0: Oh, so we can all be superheroes. We can all be Iron Man. We can all be Hawkeye. We can all be the Batman. What a better, what a, what a better vision of the world than we are getting right now in reality. But that's why we're at New York Comic Con, right? Because we want a better world. This has been so much fun. Thank you all for being here. Dr. Heather Berlin, everybody. Dr. Dan Ginsberg, everybody. I'm Dr. Charles Liu. Thank you so much for being here for this panel. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy New York Comic Con. Everyone, take a look and take a big picture.